What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And movies can sometimes take five to ten years to get made. And you say, well, why? Why does it take that long? Well, each movie pretty much is its own journey. And so to give you an example of what it is like, I thought today I would discuss our movie, Volunteers, the movie that David Isaacs and I wrote that got released in 1985. And I'll really kind of take you through from the very beginning until the very end. And you'll see all of the highs and lows. And this is just one typical story. This is the saga of Volunteers, the movie that starred Tom Hanks and John Candy, a comedy that was released, like I said, in 1985. Okay, so we go back to 1979, and David and I had just finished writing on MASH for four years, and we wanted to get into the movie industry. And back then, it was much harder to go from television to features. You really had to have a sample screenplay that would attract their attention. And even though our agent would call up these uh, producers and say, look, these guys wrote MASH. Still, the producers, it's television, it's it's sitcom, we want to see a movie. So David and I had to write a spec screenplay, and we wrote one which was basically a satirical look at the Kent State shootings. Now, <laughs> that's not a movie that anybody necessarily wanted to make, but we wanted to be sure that it didn't come off looking like a sitcom. So it was a very dark comedy, and it was very well-received, although, like I said, nobody wanted to make the movie. There was a young producer named Walter Parks, and he was working for a very small company. I forget the name of the company. Walter later, along with Larry Lasker, wrote the movie War Games and Project X, and Walter went on to a very, very successful producing career. At one time, he was running Amblin Films for Steven Spielberg. He produced Men in Black lots and lots of credits, very, very smart guy. And Walter came to us, he liked our movie, and he came to us with an idea. And the idea was this, and he thought we would be good because of our MASH background. You have a preppy asshole 
guy from Yale who tries to duck a gambling debt. So he takes his roommate's place on the plane to the Peace Corps. And so picture Brett Kavanaugh as a Peace Corps volunteer back in 1962. And that was pretty much the movie. And the only other thing that he had was it would be kind of fun if the project that the Peace Corps organized for this small town in Thailand, it was going to be set in Thailand in 1962, was that they were going to build a bridge and ultimately realize that the communists were going to use the bridge. This was just ahead of the Vietnam War. And so they blow up the bridge. And in a way, it's kind of an homage to Bridge on the River Kwai. That's really all they had. And that was an idea by a gentleman named Keith Critchlow, who ended up getting story credit on the movie. But we never dealt with... Keith Critchlow, we just worked with Walter Parks. So we're putting this movie together, and we had a very good first act, of course. You had a lot of fun about the character who was Lawrence Bourne III, and he makes this big bet on the NBA Finals. He loses. Guys are going to beat the shit out of him. His father won't give him the money, and so he switches places with his roommate and winds up on a flight to Thailand. And then we had a very good last act because we're going to just blow up the bridge. But what do you do for the 60 pages in between? And that was always our biggest problem. Okay, now they're in Thailand. What do they do? What do they do for an hour of screen time? And originally what we had, the tone of the movie was much more realistic than what it finally became. We really tried to make it like MASH. We really went for the realism, the hardships that these people endured and what it was like being a Peace Corps volunteer. And there was a lot of humor along the way, but still we really wanted that gritty realism. And we did two drafts. And I'll be honest with you, it it just wasn't popping. Uh, it was hard for us to write. We never felt really good about it. And neither did Walt, neither did anybody, actually. So we sat down with Walter and we figured, okay, what do we do with this thing? And we decided, you know, it needed to be funnier. We needed to take off the gloves and just turn this thing into a comedy. We needed to add crazy characters and crazy situations and an adventure here and there and just turn it into a really funny movie. But we had gotten paid the guild minimum to write the screenplay and to do a second draft. And so their obligation to us was over. And they basically had no more money to pay for this project. So they gave us a choice. They said, either you can do what amounts to almost a page one rewrite for free, or the movie project just dies, as so many of them do. And we still liked the project. We liked working with Walter. We decided to do it. So we took several months, and we rewrote the movie almost entirely. And that draft is really what got the movie rolling. We got MGM interested 
big studio. That was very exciting. So now it was time to come up with a, a co-producer, somebody who had produced a lot of movies. Like I said, Walter was just new to this. And so Richard Shepard was the man who was uh, selected, and he had a lot of movies under his belt, and he really knew how to go to war with this type of thing. So we had Dick Shepard on board. Now we're looking for a director, and the director that they chose, and I say they because we were really at this point just kind of out of the loop. The director they chose was a gentleman named Carl Gottlieb, and Carl Gottlieb was pretty hot at the time. I think he did the screenplay of Jaws. Anyway, he did a rewrite of the movie, and he kept most of our stuff, you know, stuff here and there that he changed, but basically it was still our film. However, MGM was kind of dragging its heels and not really greenlighting the movie or giving us any indication of when exactly they were going to greenlight the movie. So Carl Gottlieb decided to split to go off and do other things. Now we were left directorless. The studio came up with James Comack. Now, James Comack was a TV writer and producer, and he had some success in the 70s with such shows as Welcome Back, Cotter, and Chico and the Man, and a few others. Well, he decided to hire one of his friends to do a rewrite, and I'm not going to mention the name of this writer, but this guy was just a fucking hack. And he turned the script into a giant, steaming pile of shit. There were more shit jokes and fart jokes and piss jokes. It was just appalling, absolutely appalling. We didn't even want our names associated with it. Well, James Comack loved it. He thought it was great. Turned it into the studio. The studio hated it so much that they fired Comac, they fired the writer, and they put the movie into turnaround. So now it was back to square one. Walter went back to our original draft and started shopping it again. And this time he got TriStar and they had a partnership with HBO Films. They liked the movie. And this was late 1983, I believe. And so they wanted a rewrite. At this point, by the way, David and I became the only writers. No other writers were brought on board. Now, normally, when you have a movie, it is not unusual to have four, six, ten writers over a period of time. But it is kind of unusual to have one writing team or one writer pretty much with the project from start to finish. Anyway, from this point, David and I were the sole writers. They wanted a rewrite, and this time they were going to pay us. And so we spent a couple of months doing a rewrite, and I think that was the draft. You know, there's so many drafts, and you kind of forget what you add, when. But this was the draft, I believe, where we had uh, the Rita Wilson character, Beth, kidnapped by the warlord. And then the uh, Tom Hanks character, Lawrence Bourne, has to go and save her. Anyway, we do the rewrite, and... 
voila, they decide to green light it. And they get a director, and the director that they select is Nicholas Meyer. And we were thrilled. Nicholas Meyer was a writer-director. As a writer, he did 7% Solution, which is really, really good. He was the writer and director of a movie called Time After Time, which was uh, about H.G. Wells uh, going into modern-day San Francisco. Really cool movie, uh, if you haven't seen it. And, uh, and he also directed the second, in my opinion, the best Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. So we were really thrilled when Nick Myers came aboard. And Nick liked us and liked our draft. Again, anytime a new director comes on board, you figure, okay, here we go. Time for another major rewrite. Time to go in a completely different direction. No, Nick pretty much stayed with us and stayed with our script. Now it was time for casting. And we used two casting directors who we had used on MASH, Penny Ellers and Joyce Robinson. And they said, so who do you think should play Lawrence Bourne? Now, when we wrote the original draft back in 1980, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, so I'm going to make this very brief. But uh, Tom Hanks was in a TV show called Bosom Buddies on ABC, and David and I really liked it. And when Walter said, who do you think would be good to play Lawrence Bourne? We said, you know, this guy Tom Hanks would be great. Well, Tom Hanks could not get a movie made, certainly back in 1979, so it pretty much died there. However, we happened to be at the same agency as Tom, William Morris, and so one of the agents slipped him a copy of the screenplay, and he loved it. But again... No one was interested in Tom Hanks. So now you flash forward, and Tom has been in Splash, which was a splash, along with John Candy. And now he's being offered every comedy in town, and he reads one bad script after another. Nothing really interests him. And he says to his agent or his manager, you know, there was a movie about the Peace Corps that I read years ago that I just loved. What about that? And the manager or agent said, well, that's like finding a needle in a haystack, but I'll see what I can do. And here's where the story gets really freaky. An hour later, that agent gets a call from Walter Parks saying, hey, we have a movie that we would like Tom to consider. It's about a guy who goes into the Peace Corps. And so the agent said, yeah, okay, uh, send it over to him right away. And the agent calls Tom and goes, okay, well, I, uh, I turned over every stone, every rock, and I finally found it. Uh, it's on its way to you now. Well, Tom picked up the script at 5.30, and an hour later, we got a call saying that Tom Hanks was in. Tom apparently picked up the script, and he opened it up to the middle, and we had a joke that involved Margaret Dumont, who was one of the foils to the Marx Brothers, and... When he opened the script, he saw that joke, and he remembered that joke from the original draft, and he said, yep, that's the movie. I want to do it. And so Tom was in. Now, who to play the part of Tom Tuttle from Tacoma? We had written the part as kind of a little Weasley guy, you know, a Steve Buscemi kind of character. And they thought, well, 
you know, Tom Hanks and John Candy were such a great team in Splash. What if we get John Candy? And we said, we love John Candy. He's very, very funny. I don't know if he is this character as we conceived him, but sure, let's go after John Candy. They went after John Candy. He accepted. We got together with John Candy and we said, okay, now let's figure out how we can tailor this character more to you. And John said, what do you mean? This is great. I, don't change anything. I love this. And sure enough, every word that John spoke in that movie was our script verbatim. God, I love John Candy and I miss him. Now for the part of Beth Wexler, who was the gung-ho Jewish Peace Corps girl who Lawrence Bourne befriends after she hates him. Uh... We went with Rita Wilson, of course, and uh, it's legendary. Rita and Tom fell in love during the shoot and wound up getting married, and they remain a married couple today. By the way, I should mention that Tom was divorced at the time, and Rita was single at the time, okay? So there was no hanky-panky going on other than the legal hanky-panky. But she was one of three finalists, and the other two were Phoebe Cates and Kirstie Alley, and this was before Kirstie Alley had signed on to do Cheers. She had done The Wrath of Khan, the Star Trek movie with Nicholas Meyer. He really liked her, and so did we. So that was the the three that were the, the finalists for the part of Beth. My vote, if I'll be honest with you, Phoebe Cates. But hey, I'm just the writer, and Rita Wilson wound up getting the part, and who knows, maybe Phoebe Cates would be married to Tom Hanks today, and Rita Wilson would be married to Kevin Kline. You never know. So filming began in Mexico in late 1984. Right away, the cinematographer had a heart attack, so his assistant became the DP, and uh, the movie has kind of a grainy look to it. Again, if if I'm being 100% honest, I do not love the look of our movie. But it was done in Mexico, in some jungle in Mexico that I can't pronounce, and the interiors were done in Mexico City. And David and I were invited to come down and see it. But at the time, we were here in L.A. and we were doing a major rewrite on Jewel of the Nile, the Romancing the Stone sequel, so we really couldn't break away to go and see the movie. But we did get a chance to see dailies every day. And some of the dailies looked really great, really funny, and other dailies were kind of disappointing. And, of course, they always say, well, wait till it's put together. Just wait till the movie is assembled before you decide on whether or not it's good. However... David and I had been doing MASH, like I said, for four years, and we'd been seeing dailies for four years, and I'm here to tell you, the dailies that looked good remained good when the show was put together. The dailies that sucked, sucked when you edited the show together. So, yeah, okay, well, the good stuff was good, and the bad stuff uh, hopefully is cut out. 
They wrapped up principal production in early 1985 and then began editing. Ron Roos was the primary editor, and he was very nice. He allowed us to come in from time to time and look at portions and kind of look over his shoulder. And they were still editing on film back then. Remember, 1985, so they weren't doing anything digital back then. So film would be edited on what's called a moviola. And it looked like a a little TV screen. You were looking at a screen the size of kind of an iPad mini. And that's how you would judge the scenes until you put it up on a big screen. For the opening titles, they put together a montage of black and white early 1960s footage, which was pretty cool. And for the theme, they used a doo-wop hit, Blue Moon by the Marcells. And it was really cool, I guess because Ron liked us. But they put our credit over Roger Maris hitting his historic 61st home run in 1961 and rounding the bases. So that's really cool to have our credit married to Roger Maris running the bases. You know, the title was always temporary in our minds. We couldn't really think of a great title. So for the first draft, we just called it Volunteers and it, somehow remained volunteers, draft after draft, studio after studio. And that became the actual name because nobody could come up with anything better. To me, it's still kind of generic, but okay, volunteers it is. The original cut was over two hours long, and that's way too long for a comedy. And so the studio planned to have a test screening. And we knew we had to cut it, and Nick knew we had to cut it as well, but just wasn't sure what we would cut. But you would learn an awful lot when you had an audience of 500 people. So going into that screening, David and I had two major disagreements with Nick. Number one, there is a scene where the Peace Corps leader, played by Tim Thomerson, who is really, really funny. And this was a guy who played a a CIA guy who was the Peace Corps leader. And as the movie unfolds, we reveal that he's fucking nuts. But he's pursuing Rita Wilson's character, Beth. Now, to sort of give her a window into his craziness, he brings her this small Burmese statue. Now, we researched this, and we found that there are these statues that have giant penises. (laughs) Yeah. And so the gag, of course, was how inappropriate this gift was. So we're watching on the moviola, that sequence as Nick had put it together and they cut to a close-up of the penis. Now, remember, we're only looking at this on a small screen and we said, whoa, 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 you you can't do that. You go, why not? We said, well, once that gets up on the giant silver screen, people are going to gasp. And Nick said, 
yeah, but if we use the master instead, then it'll be too small and people won't get the joke. And we said, it's a big screen. They'll see it, but you just don't want to cut to a close-up of that thing. He said, let's do the close-up for the screening, and if it doesn't work, we'll take it out. We said, okay. So we do the screening at the big theater at 20th Century Fox, and David and I are sitting in the last row, and we're taking notes as the movie unspools. We get to that scene, and they cut to this giant shot of this huge penis. Every woman in the theater screamed. They just absolutely gasped and screamed. David and I had to slip out into the lobby. We laughed for 10 minutes. Well, we won that one. However, we lost the other one. And to me, that's almost more important. Now, the other scene was this. There was a character in the movie of like a Chinese dragon lady. By the way, remember, this is 1985, people, okay? So BC is 1985 sensibilities. Anyway, her English was so bad that we had subtitles. And then in one later scene, she's with Tom Hanks and another character played by Getty Watanabe. And she says something that they can't understand, so Nick has them peer down and read the subtitle. Well, it got a huge laugh, but we lobbied to cut it. And our rationale is that once you've established that the characters can break the fourth wall, well, then there's no suspense in the movie, because then anything could happen. Fish could talk. I mean, it's all silliness. And Nick said, how can you tell me to take out one of the biggest laughs of the movie? And we said, the integrity of the story is more important. It's only one laugh. Well, like I said, we lost. The joke remained in the film. It does get a big laugh, but I do believe it really hurt us. And when you get into the last 15 minutes of the film, and you're supposed to be building all of this suspense, I think the audience is waiting for cartoon characters to appear. I I don't know. It just kind of ruined the ending of the movie for me. So we finally got the movie down to one hour and 47 minutes, which to me is still 15 minutes too long. Uh, Nick, I will say this, shot our script as is, but he added a bunch of physical gags. Remember I mentioned we did a sequence where Lawrence Bourne uh, tries to rescue Beth Wexler from the warlord's lair. The warlord, by the way, was named Chung Mi, which was our favorite Chinese restaurant in downtown L.A. at the time. But uh, Nick added all of these physical bits during the escape and it's not exactly vintage Laurel and Hardy. The other thing that I remember is that our original ending didn't work. Now, I don't remember exactly what that ending was. It's been a long time since I've seen it or read it, and I don't know whether the problem was that it was shot really poorly or the script was bad and just didn't work, whatever. We had to somehow put a Band-Aid 
on the end of the movie. And so what we did, and it really is a Band-Aid, is we used some footage that had not been used before, and David and I wrote a voiceover for the Lawrence Bourne character, just kind of wrapping things up. But, um, yeah, not our best work. So anyway, the movie is finally locked. We had a cast and crew screening at the Motion Picture Academy Theater. And when it was over, it was kind of a receiving line in the lobby. David and I were standing with Walter Parks and Dick Shepard and other people from the cast. And, you know, the audience would file out and tell us all how great we were and shake our hands and that sort of thing. And uh, I was standing next to Walter Parks and one woman comes up to him and grabs his hands and goes, oh, Walter, we love you anyway. (laughs) So that was our cast and crew screening. I mentioned that we were with TriStar Pictures in association with HBO. Well, that's not a big studio, and that really put us at a disadvantage. Why? Because they didn't have the distribution muscle that a lot of the majors like Columbia and Paramount and Universal and Disney, 20th Century Fox have. As a result, those movies from the biggies get placed in the major theater chains and the more independent, smaller production companies kind of get what's left. And that was our situation. So we were supposed to premiere early in July of 1985, which is a good time because you want to be in the early part of the summer. The kids are out of school for two months and movies can linger and they can build up word of mouth and slowly become big hits, etc., etc. Well, we were in these kind of lousy theaters And the movie that preceded us turned out to be Rambo. Rambo was this big, unexpected hit of the summer. So needless to say, all of these theater owners said, we don't want to release this movie and pick up something new. I mean, we're selling out here. So they decided to extend Rambo and move our release date from early July until the 16th of August. Death. I mean, that is the end of summer. That is the dregs. So we opened that weekend, and our competition that weekend was Teen Wolf and a Pee Wee Herman Big Top Circus movie. (laughs) like all of the great summer movies had been released in June and July. And like I said, we were the, the table scraps. And I mentioned bad theaters. Okay, a major location for theaters in Los Angeles is Westwood. Westwood is this village right near UCLA, and there are quite a few major theaters in the Westwood area, all within walking distance of each other. Yeah, the Fox Theater, the Bruin, the Regent, the Avco, the National, the UA, and there were a couple more. We couldn't get into any of those. We were three miles south 
on Pico Boulevard in West Los Angeles at a theater called The Pickwood. And we were the last movie that The Pickwood was ever going to show because they were going to tear down that theater and the adjacent bowling alley and put up a mall, the West Side Pavilion. And so I can say not only was our movie bad enough that we closed a theater, we also shut down a bowling alley. Okay, reviews. Mixed, (laughs) to say the least. Okay, Walter Goodman of the New York Times. Okay, this is the New York Times, people. This is what he had to say. Take a healthy helping of Raiders of the Lost Ark, a dollop of The Bridge on the River Kwai, a dash of any Tarzan movie, a soupcom of Casablanca, a whiff of The Wizard of Oz, and a stunt or two from your favorite Saturday cereal. Stir frenetically, and if you're lucky enough to have snappy dialogue by Ken Levine and David Isaacs, you may end up with as funny a movie as Volunteers. Wow! That's a great review. And again, New York Times, prestigious. My relatives read that. Variety said, Volunteers is a very broad and mostly flat comedy from a story by Keith Critchlow about hijinks in the Peace Corps circa 1962. Top-lined Tom Hanks gets in a few good zingers as an upper-class snob doing time in Thailand, but promising premise and opening shortly descends into unduly protracted tedium. So there you go. Sergeant Shriver, who was the head of the Peace Corps in 1962, he read the script. We were kind of hoping for an endorsement from Sergeant Shriver. We thought that would be kind of cool. He wrote back saying that uh, (laughs) the movie was like spitting on the American flag. Okay, there goes that endorsement. Now it's opening night, August 16th, 1985. It's 7.30, and we're standing outside the Pickwood Theater, and Richard Shepard, one of our producers, sees us out front, takes us aside, and goes, we're dead. He checked the early East Coast returns and determined that we were a flop. I mean, I didn't even get a chance to sit through the premiere (laughs) without knowing that the movie was dead. And as it turned out, in all fairness, volunteers made back its money and did okay. But then a very strange thing happened. It went on television. And for whatever reason, it became a huge hit. ABC aired it, and it got big, big numbers. They reran it, and it got big numbers again. HBO ran the crap out of that movie. To this day, Volunteer still runs on HBO, and during May and November sweeps, it airs on local channels, it airs on cable networks. Rarely do a couple of months go by, when you can't find volunteers somewhere on TV. So my feelings about the film. Okay, when I saw it originally, all I could see were the flaws. Tom Hanks, who I love, 
went in and out of this Cary Grant type accent. I don't know exactly what he was doing. There was a scene that we wrote that was supposed to be played very frenetically, like really hell's a poppin'. Things are fast and furious and they're moving back and forth and they make this quick decision. And the idea is they make this decision before they really think about it. Well, the way the scene was played, they were all sitting around depressed. And it was our words, word for word, our script, but the scene made no sense to me as a result of it. That bothered me. The physical bits, like I said, bothered me. The The look of the movie bothered me. But a lot of it worked. And it got a lot of laughs from the audience. Anytime I would go and watch an audience screening of it. It was always very enjoyable. Everyone was laughing and having a good time. So, hey, (laughs) you know, there's worse things. I did Mannequin too. There were no laughs. So at least there were a lot of laughs in Volunteers. But years have gone by since I watched it. And recently I saw that it was on HBO, and so I decided to watch it again, and I figured... Look, at any time I could just say, okay, I've seen enough of this and click off and find something else. Well, I wound up watching the entire movie and my reaction was somewhat surprising. I like it a lot more now than I did then. And yeah, those flaws are still there, but it is very funny and there is a story a real beginning, middle, and an end. And there's a, a lot of satire to it. There's a, a lot of political jokes. And in a way, it's almost sophisticated humor when you compare it to the R-rated raunch comedies of today. I was very pleasantly surprised. Finally, I like Volunteers. And now the epilogue. My partner David met Julia Roberts a few years ago and he was at a party or something, I don't know, and uh, they were talking and he had mentioned casually that he was a co-writer of Volunteers and Julia Roberts started quoting lines. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty cool. Also, Tom Tuttle from Tacoma. Now, we had him, an alum of Washington State University, We had them singing the Washington State fight song. And to this day, Tom Tuttle from Tacoma is an icon in the Pacific Northwest. And they still play scenes from volunteers at football games at Washington State University. So in a sense, we kind of have our legacy. And since I spent a number of years as a broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners and I have a particular fondness for the Pacific Northwest anyway, uh, to me, I'm, I'm really tickled that Tom Tuttle from Tacoma still lives. And Julia Roberts, wow. So you think back and how many movies that were made some 30 years ago we're talking now, are never seen again. You'll never see them on TV. They're gone. They're forgotten. They'll never be on Netflix. And yet, Volunteers was just on HBO a couple of weeks ago. And 
wow, <laughs> I'm very proud of that movie. So there is a, a look at just one movie, the ups and downs. You get green light, you're going to be made. Now it goes into turnaround. Now it's dead. Now you have Tom Hanks. Now you have a, a great release time. Now you have a shitty release time. Now you have a great review. Now you have a shitty review. It is an absolute roller coaster. And this is more the rule than the exception. So that is a look at what it is like to shepherd a movie from start to finish. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and to Howard Hoffman. Uh, If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, you know my email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Why are you not following me on Twitter, at Ken Levine? And I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.